0: Okay, today we will be discussing the Savasava Sutta, Sutta number two in the Machimanikaya, which has the meaning all the things. This I would say is one of the more important suttas in the Machimanikaya, for which reason it was placed by the compilers of the canon, who is placed as the second Sutta. The Buddha opens the Sutta by addressing the monks and telling them that I shall teach you a discourse on the restraint of all the taints. This is the title that the Buddha himself gives to the Sutta. I write the poem. Even though the Buddha speaks about the restraint or restraining of the taints, but we should realize that he's actually going to speak about more than the restraining of the taints, but also about the destruction of the taints. So we have here two things, two ideas compressed in this word restraining, both actual restraining and eradication or abandoning. Of this title the key term, the key word for understanding the whole sutta, even the whole nature of the Buddha's teaching is the word asapa. The word asapa it comes from a verb sabhati, which means to flow. And in singular, do you have any word that corresponds to that? Flowing. Savanara? Is there such a sub-an-wa? Anyway, that's not point. Okay, so Savati means to flow, and then the, we have a prefix, ah, which can mean either in or out. So some people interpret asavas as inflowing things, influxes, even influences others interpret it as outwardly flowing things, effluence, outflows. And either interpretation seems to be valid, though I would understand it more as things which flow into the mind, let us say things which flow in to the conscious layers of the mind from the deep, hidden reservoirs of the mind. And within the Buddha's teaching, the Asapis function, I would use the expression that they are the most fundamental and most primordial layer of the defilements of the culaces. So that the final achievement, or the achievement of the final goal of the Buddha's teaching, is said to be asapakaya, which means the destruction of the taints. So the final goal of the Buddha's teaching is the destruction of the taints, and that attainment is equivalent to arahantship itself to the state of spiritual liberation. So the whole aim of the Buddhist practice, even from the beginning stages, points in the direction of these the destruction of these asadas, these basic defilements or pains. And the person who has accomplished this task, the one who has fulfilled the teaching, The Arahant is called Kinasra, a one for whom the taints are destroyed. Okay, what are these taints now that have to be destroyed by the practice of the Buddha's path? The oldest texts, the oldest Buddhist texts, the suttas enumerate three. Asavas, three basic defilements. These are first kama, which is the taint of sensuality, taint of sensual sensual desire. Okay, this is the desire or craving for enjoyable objects of the five senses. Pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes tactile objects. But even more basic than sensual craving is bhavasavata, which means literally it's the taint of existence. But it doesn't mean that existence itself is the taint, but it's really the craving for existence that is the taint. It's bhava tanha. Identical with Bhavatana, thirst or craving for continued existence. And so when a person passes away, what keeps that person in bondage to samsara, to the round of rebirths, is this craving for continued existence. The desire to go on in one form of individual, conditioned existence, one form or another. So through beginningless time, we have been driven from life to life through this craving for existence. And that is bhavasava, the taint of existence. Then underlying both sensual desire and the craving for existence is the most fundamental taint or defilement of all. This is the taint of ignorance, abhijasabha, which means ignorance here, not understanding things as they really are. It doesn't mean lacking in higher education. One can be perfectly fully educated, with full credentials, BA, MA, PhD, and yet one is fully ignorant also. And one could be a simple peasant or manual laborer and yet be free from ignorance. Okay, so it's this blindness, you can call it, the spiritual blindness to the real nature of phenomena. Blindness to dependent, arising to the three characteristics, the Four Noble Truths, even to the Law of Karma, this is ignorance. And because we remain immersed in this ignorance, then we are constantly desiring to enjoy pleasurable objects of the senses, that's the taint of sensuality, And we are continually hankering for new forms of existence, dreaming of being reborn in a rich family, in a heavenly world, in a Brahma world. (laughs) (laughs) So one form, desire for one life or another, that is the craving for its Baba And we can say that Karmasava is the same as Karmatana, sensual craving. bhavasava is the same as Bhavatana, craving for existence. And Avijasava is just ignorance itself. And you'll see, you know the formula for dependent origination. You see what are the two most powerful causes for keeping samsara going abhija-pacheya-sankara, through ignorance there arise <coughs> volitional formations, and tanha-pacheya-upadana, through craving there comes clinging. So we have at the base, the fundamental root of dependent origination, ignorance and craving, And of those two roots, craving is represented by the first and second taint, and ignorance is shown in its own nature. But now, some of the later texts, particularly in the Abhidhamma and the commentaries, add a fourth taint, or asava. This is called ditta-asava, or ditiyasava. This is the taint, of wrong views, of distorted views. I think some of the compilers of the canon added ditityosopha because ditti wrong view is what reinforces ignorance. If one is simply ignorant, then it's easy to be transformed to correct one's ignorance, to knowledge. But usually the mind doesn't just remain in ignorance, but when one doesn't understand things as they really are, then one forms opinions about them. And one holds to those opinions tightly and says, this is the truth, anything else is wrong. It's like the famous parable of the blind man and the elephant that comes in the Udana. You know the story, the prince wants to amuse himself, so he brings in an elephant, and he has a group of blind men come, and each one is to touch one part of the elephant. And so one person touches the trunk, another person touches the ear, another person touches the leg, another person touches the side of the body. Another blind man touches the tail and then the prince asks them to describe what an elephant is like. So one says an elephant is like a hose, the one who touched the trunk. (laughs) The one who touched the ear says that the elephant is like a fan, a big fan. The one who touched the side says the elephant is like a wall. The one who touched the leg says the elephant is like a post. The one who touched the tail says the elephant is like a rope. And then, well, since they're all present together, then they start arguing with each other and fighting over their disagreement about the nature of an elephant. So, as long as they don't see the elephant, that's being like being in ignorance. But when they touch parts of the elephant and then form their own opinions, what the elephant is like, that is like a wrong view. And as long as they hold the wrong view, even if they were to regain their sight, and to be able to see the elephant, they won't be able to even relinquish their view and to perceive the elephant as an elephant. Maybe they will focus only upon that part of the elephant which agrees with their preconception. Okay, so now the Buddha is going to lay down this teaching in the Savasada Sutta as the means, discipline for restraining the taints and then eradicating These two have to be followed in sequence. First, one has to train oneself in restraining the taints, which means to prevent them from becoming active, from flowing into the mind and motivating ones. It has to prevent them from flowing into the mind and crystallizing, taking shape in the form of thoughts and emotions, defiled thoughts and emotions, and from motivating defiled actions. That is the process of restraining the things. Then, by developing the mind, step by step, one is able to gain the wisdom or insight which will eradicate or destroy the things. That is the ultimate goal. Okay, so now the Buddha, after he announces the theme of his sutta, begins by giving a summary of what is to come. He says, I say that the destruction of the taints, that is the final goal, is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know. And does not see. Who knows and sees what? Here the Buddha says, wise attention and unwise attention. For when one attends to things unwisely, then unarisen taints arise and arisen taints increase. And when one Attends wisely, unarisen taints do not arise, and arisen taints are abandoned. Okay, here the Buddha introduces two important terms, which we can understand as the key to the to gaining the knowledge through which the taints are destroyed. The two terms in Pali yoniso manasikara and ayoniso manasikara. The word manasikara means bringing into the mind. Literally, it's bringing into the mind. Putting into the mind. But well, we usually translate it attention, but it could also be rendered sometimes even consideration or reflection a little more loosely reflection, and basically it means the way one considers things, the way one looks upon things. Now this mode of attention, the way we attend to things, can be either wise or unwise, yoniso or ayoniso. Yoni actually means the womb. And so, somehow, <laughs> this expression so gets to mean, perhaps the sense is like going back to the womb, in the sense of going very back to the origins. But it takes on the meaning of being very thorough, deeply, going deep, thorough, careful systematic methodical and the opposite of that ayonisoma Sikhara, is attention which is shallow superficial careless um, partial incomplete or we could even say distorted. And so the Buddha will say that when one engages in unwise attention, then one is nourishing avijja or ignorance. In a sense, this is a vicious cycle. The reason why one attends to things carelessly and unwisely is because of ignorance. If one didn't have ignorance, then one would attend to things wisely. But the unwise consideration in turn reinforces ignorance and it strengthens ignorance in such a way that ignorance will give rise to the other defilements, the other attainments. Okay, the commentaries usually give a very exact definition of unwise attention and wise attention. Unwise attention is said to be attending to things in terms of the four distortions, attending to impermanent things as permanent. Unpleasure, things that are really dukkha, unsatisfactory, attending to them as sources of happiness, attending to things which are insubstantial as being the true self, and attending to unlovely things as being beautiful and attractive. And wise attention is just the opposite attending to the impermanent as impermanent, attending to suffering as suffering, attending to what is not self as not self, and attending to the unlovely as being unlovely. Okay, that's kind of fixed doctrinal definition. And this wise, unwise attention this the Buddha places at the very root of sangsara. It is even just almost as fundamental as ignorance, since it's unwise attention which nurtures ignorance, and ignorance is what sustains the whole onward movement of samsara. And Yoniso Manasikara Wise attention, the Buddha says, this is the beginning of the path to liberation. He says that it's when one attends wisely, then one develops the Noble Eightfold Path. So the whole development of the Eightfold Path depends on wise attention. so these two terms will play a very central role in this discourse. And now the Buddha announces that he is going to explain seven ways of abandoning the taints. He says that there are taints to be abandoned by seeing, pains to be abandoned by restraining, pains to be abandoned by using, by enduring, by avoiding, by removing, and by developing. That is the sort of summary of what's going to come in the Sutta. And of these seven ways of abandoning, what Buddha calls seven ways of abandoning the things, there are two methods which actually eradicate or destroy things. Of these seven, two have the function of eradication the other five merely restrain the things, keep them under control. What are the two methods which will destroy the things?
1: Restrain and Excuse me? First and the
0: last. Right. Exactly. The first is seeing and the last is developing. That is because... What is meant by seeing, as we'll see, is seeing the Four Noble Truths, which means gaining an effect, gaining the stage of stream entry, and developing, that is the process of transforming the vision of the Four Noble Truths into full understanding, which culminates in full enlightenment are The other five are techniques for keeping the taints under control, preventing them from becoming active. Okay, now the Buddha enters into the main part of the exposition. Paragraph 5, taints to be abandoned by seeing. Okay, and he begins not by showing directly how the Tains are abandoned by seeing, but showing the opposite of this. He takes the case of the ordinary, the untaught ordinary person. This is the uninstructed worldling, one who has no knowledge about the Dhamma, no confidence in the Dhamma, and no commitment to the practice of the Dhamma just an ordinary worldly person. Okay, such a person does not understand what things should be attended to and what things should not be attended to. And so for this reason he attends to the things which are unfit for attention and he does not attend to those things that are fit for attention. (laughs) We can see, for example, take numbers of people who go to discotheques and to cinemas, dance halls, um, (laughs) cricket (laughs) games. (laughs) Um, who, when they want to do something interesting or exciting, we will go maybe to watch violin films or sex films, those are many vast numbers of people, and people who enjoy sports like boxing, wrestling, where people are hurting each other, and people who become all worked up and excited over forms of entertainment which appeal to the lower aspects of human nature. Okay, those will be the vast majority, the great overwhelming majority of human beings. And the people who are, numbers of people who are interested in studying profound Dhamma, or, or when you have a discourse on profound Dhamma taking place, or intensive meditation retreat, you don't draw the uninstructed, ordinary, uninstructed, worldly people. They don't come for that. So we could say that these people, when there's profound Dhamma discourse taking place, we don't get the ordinary, worldly people. You go to the cinema, you put up a sign that there's sutta classes at the BPS on (laughs) Thursday. (laughs) And <laughs> you, you won't get many people giving up the cinema and coming to the sutra class. This is not to knock all movies, by the way, since they are very, in the West at any rate, they are very skillful, very highly sophisticated movies. But unfortunately, I have to say, from what I could see from cinema advertisements in this country, they don't get shown here for some reason. Usually it's the most mediocre, the most mediocre and just almost trashy films, which get shown in the local scenes. Okay, so the worldly, ordinary worldly person attends to those things which shouldn't be attended to, and does not turn his attention to those things which should be attended to. Okay, now the Buddha is going to explain what are the things that are unfit for attention. And he says that they are the things which, when one attends to them, cause the taints, if they have not yet arisen before, to arise. And if one goes on attending to them, then they increase, they become stronger. Those are the things that are unfit for attention. And the things that are fit for attention, those things that should be attended to, are the things which when one attends to them, then unarisen taints do not arise, and the arisen taints are abandoned, eliminated. Now the commentary makes an interesting and important point in relation to these things which should not be attended to and which should be attended to. The commentary says that there is no fixed determination in things themselves as to whether they should be attended to or not, but it's rather the way one attends to them which is all essential. For example, Okay, ordinary people say, (laughs) if they see, (laughs) excuse me, a striptease show going on, then (laughs) it makes them all excited, and so the taint of sensuality becomes really burning and blazing in the mind, and they are all aroused and intoxicated by this, and they're looking very eagerly But if, say, a meditative monk who's really well-trained in the Dhamma should be passing by while the striptease show is taking place, then he might look at the model who's doing the striptease, and he just contemplates in that body there is what? Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. Remove the skin, there's just flesh, bones, nerves, uh, your flesh, nerves, bones, bone marrow, open up the cage of bones, there's kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, intestines, and so on. So he sees the object as it really is. And so for that meditator, there's no arising of sensuality and even the tendency to sensuality will get weakened. Okay, if an ordinary person is passing by a scene where, say, a fight is taking place, two fighting in the street, that again, his attention will be aroused, he'll be looking all of his... Um, say he's watching a boxing match, then he has a favorite boxer, one boxer he likes, and he's all excited. <laughs> And he's saying, shouting out, hit him, punch him, give him a good whack. <laughs> and if the opponent is winning, then he's getting angry and saying, he's cursing his favorite, uh, boxer. What are you doing? Why are you, you're worthless. I've placed so much hope on you. So his emotions are swinging back and forth between the one <laughs> and the other. <laughs> okay, but if somebody who is trained in the Dhamma should happen to be passing by while the boxing match is taking place. <laughs> he'll look at this scene going, taking place, and wonder how can human beings be hitting each other and punching each other, and how can be people be watching this with so much enthusiasm and so much excitement. And there will arise in him compassion for these poor people who are all completely engrossed and enthralled in this ferocious boxing match taking place. So for that person, then, even in the midst of a boxing match, then wholesome mental states can arise. Okay, and that is in the case of the things that are normally unfit for attention. If one attends to them wisely, even those things can be used to develop wholesome qualities. But there should not be an encouragement for you to go to striptease shows and boxing matches thinking that you can (laughs) thereby develop wholesome qualities. One should try to avoid things which normally appeal to the unwholesome dispositions of the mind. But if one becomes develops some skill and training of the mind, then if one is exposed to them, then one knows how to handle oneself in the midst, and even to transform what is normally an obstacle to spiritual development, to transform it into an aid. Okay, now the Buddha is going to show how from (coughs) unwise attention there arises doubt. Now he's taking, because this is the sort of strategy, he wants to show the taints that are to be eliminated by seeing, which means not just opening one's physical eyes, but seeing things as they really are. So, to deal with the opposite of that, expose the opposite of that first, he is going to show the things, the way the worldly person becomes immersed and ensnared in wrong views. So because this person first attends unwisely, he attends in ways which arouse ignorance, sensual craving, and craving for existence, the person starts to reflect and there arises in him doubt about his own existence. He starts wondering, did I exist in the past? Did I not exist in the past? What was I in the past? What shall I be in the future? How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Then in the future, shall I exist in the future? Shall I not exist in the future? What shall I be in the future? And so on or else he gets so confused that he's even perplexed about his own existence right here in the present. He wonders, do I exist now? Maybe I don't exist. What am I? How am I? Where have I come from? Where will I go? And what is common to all of these reflections is that they revolve around the idea of I, taking, the worldly person takes this idea of I, I am, at its base value, as indicating that there is somehow a real I here, some kind of self, some kind of subject which could have come from a past life, or maybe not some kind of self which could go on to a future life or maybe not. Okay, so he gets, his mind becomes overrun by all of these different doubts, perplexity, questioning and then as he goes on questioning, he doesn't remain comfortable because it's not comfortable to be in a state of perpetual doubt. So to escape from that discomfort, then he becomes, he adopts some kind of view, a fixed view and a wrong view. And these views will all revolve around the notion of some kind of true I, true lasting I, which is the self. Okay, so the Buddha now will turn, ex, will enumerate these views that he might adopt as sixfold. He can adopt the view, the first is, a self exists for me, I have a self. Okay, this view appears to him as something true and established, something that he holds to definitely as being self-evident, incontrovertible. Okay, this kind of view, this is, we can call it, an early stage of the eternalist view, the view that I have a permis of. The opposite of that is the view that I have no self, that there is no self that exists. Very often the Anatta teaching of the Buddha is explained as the view that, or the teaching that there is no self, but to explain it in that way I think is not quite correct, not the right formulation, since the view there is no self implies what we call the eternalist, the uh, the annihilationist view. The view that the person comes to a complete end of death and is utterly annihilated and that there's nothing that survives death. The Buddha's way of formulating the non-self is never that there is no self, but rather that whatever one takes to be a self if you examine it properly, will turn out to be not a Self, non-Self. Okay, now the Buddha will take the case, when the person adopts a view of Self, then he has to figure out specifically, what is my Self? And when we reflect on ourselves, if we just think about ourselves, you see that the mind can divide into two parts. There is the part which is doing the investigation, the part which is inquiring, and there is the part which is subject to this investigation, subject to the inquiry. If you just reflect about yourself, thinking a few minutes, what am I? You start looking. You start maybe taking the body. Where is the body, the self? Are the thoughts, myself? Are the feelings, myself? You'll see that there's the part which is inquiring, investigating, and there are the parts of one's person, one's personality, which are being investigated, the body, the feelings, the thoughts, and so on. And so we have this kind of division in the human nature. We call it the subjective aspect and the objective aspect. And so when one formulates a view of self, one can (coughs) take either of three alternatives. One can say that the subjective part of one's experience is the self and the objective part is not the self. In this case one has the subject as some kind of disembodied spirit or purely mental spirit and then body, feelings, thoughts become not the self. This is a line which seems to be taken in the Danta, for example, or even in the Sankhya philosophy in India. We have the body, feelings, thoughts, everything is part of prakriti, which means objective nature. And the true subject, the true self is the purusha, the pure subject. The indescribable, indefinable subject. Another view, that's the view, actually, I I didn't go quite see, but that is a view, I perceive not self with self. Okay, another alternative is to take the body. Feelings, thoughts, one of those or another, to say that is myself. But this mind which is investigating the subject, that is not the self. That is just, you could say, some byproduct of the real self. It's difficult to think of some example of this. <laughs> Though it agrees perhaps with a certain kind of contemporary view, we use the word epiphenomenalism, which means that the mind is just a byproduct of physical bodily processes. The body is real, the physical processes are real, the mind or consciousness is just an unnecessary or secondary byproduct. Okay, then the third alternative, which actually comes first here, is to hold that they are both self. That is, I perceive self with self. This view can say the awareness or consciousness, that is the subjective self, and the things which are being reflected on, the body, feelings, perceptions, that is the objective self but both subject and object together are the self. This could be, in Western philosophy, you might call this the dual, they call it dualism, philosophical dualism. The self consists of both body and mind, and the problem becomes, how do you explain their relationship if they are two such different things? Then the final view, the sixth view, is a full-fledged eternalism. This statement here seems almost as if it were taken out from the Upanishads or maybe the Vedic literature. It is this self of mind that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result Of good and bad actions. The self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and it will endure as long as eternity. Do you know anything in the Upanishads that is in the Great Discourse on Destruction? Exactly the same words are there. But it seems, I mean, in both cases, it seems that it's a position that was developed before the time of the Buddha, and the Buddha seems to be quoting some earlier sources. But we don't know exactly what that source is. Okay, now the Buddha says this speculative view, referring to all of them, any one of these alternatives. This is called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. And fettered by this fetter of views, the uninstructed, ordinary person is not free from birth, aging and death, not free from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. He is not freed from suffering I say. Okay, here the Buddha is really it seems that a passage like this could be even the basis for which the, the basis for, for which some of the early teachers introduced the Dithāsava as a fourth taint. Thus, the Buddha is showing here, the really binding nature of wrong views. When one develops some view of a self, then it means that that view gives substance, or it gives some kind of justification for one's sense that I am somebody. And so one holds to that view and becomes attached to it, and when one becomes attached to that view, that becomes a tight clinging, which just keeps one from seeing things as they really are, and which keeps one bound to the wheel of <coughs> things. That is why the Buddhas hear such strong language in describing the effects of clinging to a wrong view.
2: Assumptions.
0: Assumptions, yeah. yeah.
2: And I think it's very interesting what you said about these one, two, three, three and four. Yeah. But uh, you stopped short of using the word Vibhava Tanna when it comes to Avidya and Dita sana, because that is also something which is a Tanna caused by these. Yeah. And uh, bhavatana, vibabatana. The vibabatana can be also understood as craving form of knowingness.
0: <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure I would understand it that way, but this is a very important and interesting point. That amongst the asapas the Buddha mentions Kama Asava and Bhavasapa, which are two of the three types of craving but not Vibha, he doesn't have Vibhavasava. I think this is the reason Vibhavatanha tanha is a craving for annihilation. So it's a type of craving, a type of unwholesome craving, and that type of craving also gives rise to suffering, and so it's included in the Four Noble Truths. But the Vibhavatana itself is not an asava, because <coughs> it does not bring attachment to existence. And the asaphas of the basic defilements which keep one bound to samsara, to the round of existence. So even Vibhavatana can be, I would say, converted, transformed with the right attitude and the right instruction into an aspiration for nibbāna, Because one sees the faults in existence and one has some wish for release from existence, but because one doesn't have right understanding, one goes about trying to gain release in the wrong way, that is, by self annihilation, or one develops a view that, for at least the end of suffering comes when one dies, when one passes away. For the same reason, the Buddha doesn't make we have the three unwholesome roots raga, dosa, moha, greed, hatred, delusion. Greed or lust is included amongst the paints as kamasava or bhavasava, and delusion is included as avijasava since delusion and ignorance are almost the same so we don't have an asava of dosa of the reason is that hatred itself is not a defilement which attaches one to samsara. It's a defilement which leads to unwholesome karma and to lower rebirths within (laughs) samsara. But in itself, it doesn't have that sticky quality of raga or loba, of greed or lust. And it doesn't have the blinding quality of ignorance. But it's rather a quality of dosa is a negative quality, almost a repulsive disposition, which again, if it's transformed in certain ways, can become a liberating force, (laughs) but it can't be expressed in the form of anger and hatred. you shake your head?
2: Yeah, I have the feeling that... uh... The more liberating force is karma and bhava without vibhava, <laughs> uh, <re-bother, laughs> because that would make us uh, more in uh, mentality of a bodhisattva. The bodhisattva mentality is definitely something which is karma and bhava, but with no vibhava. Yeah. Uh, and in that way, I see, it I cannot get any much, much profitable uh, things out of discussed with life uh, and all those things, if there is not some, somewhere compensation. Mm.
1: Right?
2: Even when it is a refined, a refined, responsible hedionism, mm. it has a place in the samatha bhavana somewhere. Right?
0: Yeah. OK, that is all with you say about the Sutta at this point, if there's any questions.
1: Sir, uh, regarding the word uh, Aswa, yeah. the word Aswa, Is yeah. the famous Oliver, yeah. famous Oliver, covering yeah. the broad spectrum yeah. of five words, yeah. and debauchery, and, yeah. and so on. And yeah. the
0: second
1: three days, that these Asavas are dormant yeah, yeah. in all world leagues.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Third point is yeah. that these Asavas being for it the highest place of existence. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. so much
1: so, that the word Asava, the word Asava, although it is more famous, Has also been called
0: infamously famous. Infamously famous, yeah. Okay, those are some good points. The first one you said, second was that. The first, you made three characteristics of the Asavas. You said three things about them.
1: Yes, it pervades in the highest. Yes, that was sort of. The first one. The first one. Uh, Infamously famous. yeah. 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 these human being, Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes clear why they're called Asifas. that they lie on the base of the at the base of the mind you could say. in all unenlightened beings, and then when the person meets with suitable conditions, then they are provoked or stimulated so that they flow up into the active layers of the mind and become, we call them, motives or drives behind the thought processes, emotions and actions. Wait, I just wanted to elaborate a little little more on what he said. Then they're also called asapas, things which flow. This is from the commentary, because they flow everywhere throughout samsara, from the highest planes of existence, even to the lowest planes. So even those beings who have reached the formless realms, the sphere of infinite space, sphere of infinite consciousness, sphere of nothingness, sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, these most lofty realms of existence, even in them, the asavas are present and flowing. And because of the asavas, they are not yet free from continued existence. And then the asapas, the commentary also explains asapas to have another usage, another meaning of the word is things which have been um, fermented for a long time so that they become intoxicating. It's used, it seems that it was used as a term for fermented beverages and that's why some translators render them to w- render the word as intoxicants.
1: Actually, we'll be yeah. <coughs> the Advas, be present yeah. in all beings
0: yeah.
1: until they reach the Tatragu or the threshold yeah. and put the higher
0: Right, yeah. yeah, very good. Um, you mentioned for
2: the outside, it comes from inside out or yeah. from outside yeah. in. I would say, as an illustration, it is better when we take it from inside out. Yeah. Yeah. But as a fact, it's neither inside, neither
1: outside. Literally,
0: neither inside nor yes. outside. But that it's a kind of metaphorical use. Yes. The way that you could see them coming from outside in, you could say that the sense objects, form, sound, smells, tastes, tactile objects, Thoughts are what provoke the asavas to come into play and so the asavas then flow through the mind and out the sense faculties towards the objects which one experiences. That's why they're called outflows. Ingeborg, you so I wanted to know
1: whether you can see the asavas. For deliverance, can you you see it as a
2: a transform transformation material that you can go from passion to dispassion and from dispassion to compassion, maybe like that, you can see it in a positive way, but with the intent to transform it.
0: I didn't quite get the... Uh, if you, uh, if you, uh, can you come to compassion without passion? Can you come to compassion without passion?
1: Without transforming passion, transform passion
0: or can you go to One needs passion in order to arrive at compassion and one has to become some, to some degree dispassionate in order for compassion to arise, I would say. As long as passion is obsessing the mind. I, it's
1: only as the, a housewife you always know, think for well, change you
2: have to remove that, uh, Yeah. But I, I thought it is also uh, thinkable to uh, to see it as something which you have to handle, which you have to transform. To
0: yeah. As long as one is dealing with them, one has to handle them wisely, but eventually one has to eradicate them.
2: <laughs> the old German word for things is here wänen, and wänen, and it has something to do with hoping for, expectation, bias
0: and so on. Mm. Yes? It is all going towards those – I think we have it, used.
2: use – also, but uh, triebe. I and mean, in the old sense, not in the modern sense. I
0: don't
2: know, It is a very fine assumption in yeah. the way you are assuming that brings that, that brings that, that brings that. And that question, of course, is is finally of the high, the passion is needed. And when you overcome that particular passion, then you have that perfect satisfaction which then removes the passion, mm. no? which is necessary. Only perfect satisfaction, craving becomes extinction. That is like that.
1: Mm. Yes.
0: Seeing is here, correct in the It's Samadithi, yeah. But more than just Samadithi, conceptual Samadithi, but it's the actual seeing. We'll come to discuss that next next week is the Poya so then we have to have the next class in two weeks okay thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate